I grew up in a family with five children. I was the middle child, and I was the quintessential middle child. So when you think middle children, think of me. So a uh, peacekeeper, sometimes forgotten at church, forgotten at church multiple times. Uh, but the big thing, the thing that I like to tease my parents on is they forgot to give me the talk. And you know, you know, you know the talk that I'm talking about. So uh, Christy, Holly, Abby, Paul, they, they got the book, they got the hotel, the retreat, you know, the whole big thing, and I got nothing. I ended up being okay because that was one of those topics that was just regularly talked about in my house. It seems like, on that particular topic at least, people tend to fall into one of three categories. The first is where, is where it's never mentioned at all. You know, somebody accidentally says something, everybody's face gets red. And then there's the, the, the people that only have the talk. And then they're, they're, they're preparing for it, they're getting ready for it, and then it's done and you're, whew, okay, glad that's over with, phew. And then there's the homes where it just kind of seems to come up in conversation, sometimes over and over and over again. I grew up in this house, so I was okay with that. I think there's some overlap in terms of how we talk about sex in our families and how we talk about God. We've got those families that never say anything at all. There's families that uh, Perhaps they, it comes up occasionally, or, or, or they're planning ahead, they're figuring out how they can say this one little thing, and then, oh, phew, I'm done. Okay, check, yep. And then there's the families where it's just kind of in the water, part of their, part of their conversations. My hope for tonight is to convince you, first of all, that it's important that we talk about our faith, not just live it out. And the second would be just some tips, some thoughts on how we might be empowered to do just that. Some of this applies to families, some of it doesn't. Uh, some of this would go more towards small groups. I study youth ministry specifically, and so a lot of what I'm going to share is going to come from that perspective, but my hope is that regardless of what situation you're in, that it will, it will transcend uh, to where you're at. So... I want to start off by showing you this book that came out 12 years ago now, Soul Searching by Christian Smith. This was the largest study to date on uh, American teenage spirituality. They interviewed over a series of years something like a little over 3,000 teenagers to find out what is it that you believe. Countless interviews, one-on-one -on -one conversations, surveys, and they had an interesting response to this question, what do you believe? Um, I haven't really thought about that, I don't know, just like, um, what they taught me, what I grew up knowing, I don't know, I don't remember, I don't think so, hmm, I don't think I'd like to ask somebody about that, or I don't really know how to answer it, skipping ahead. Bottom line, what they found was that most teenagers can't talk about God, even those who attend church, even those who attend church a lot. <laughs> so one of those comments up there was from a young teenager who went to church on Sunday mornings, on Sunday evenings, and a midweek Bible study. But they're realizing it's not just the teenagers. These teenagers tend to be an accurate reflection of their parents. So if you think about your own growing up years, uh, how, how many of you would say, yeah, my faith today looks at least somewhat similar to my parents. We're in the same vicinity. All right, that's a lot of us here. How many of you would say, nope, completely different? Fewer, fewer hands there. We tend to be an accurate, uh, a reflection of what we see in our parents. 
So what they found, this was one of the big takeaways, was that, I'll skip down to the bottom, it was our distinct sense that for many of the teens we interviewed, our interview was the first time that any adult had ever asked them what they believed and how it mattered in their lives. So what? So this, this report comes out 12 years ago, and youth ministry, at least, tended to fall into one of two camps. The first camp over here was, was anxious and aghast, and oh my goodness, this is horrible, we've got to do something about it. And then there was the camp over here like, meh, what does it matter? They're going to church, that's great. They're, they're, they're growing into be, being good, law-abiding citizens, paying their, eh, what does it matter? In my first church that I was at, I had a mom once ask me if, instead of doing our Sunday school curriculum, we could just watch Disney movies, because sometimes kids just need to be kids. She would fall more in this category, over here. I think it's a problem. I think it's a big deal, for a few different reasons. It's difficult to believe in things we cannot talk about. We've got all different kinds of sociological studies out there telling us that if you can't talk about something, you're going to have a hard time maintaining some internal belief. Oftentimes, we have to talk ourselves into what it is we believe. Have you ever had the experience where you say something, and then you go, oh, that sounded a whole lot better in my head? I have that a lot. Just because it's in your head doesn't necessarily mean it comes out the way you intend, right? Or my students, the first draft that they write of a paper, it's not very good normally. And hopefully they're not turning in their first draft, hopefully they're turning in their second or third, right, right, right? Because oftentimes we have to talk ourselves into what it is we really believe. The ideas in our brains we don't talk about are often murky and unclear. When I was uh, first married to John, we lived in this dinky, teeny, tiny apartment, and uh, John was gone for a weekend, and I was home alone. John came back at the end of the weekend, walked inside, and said, whoa, it's really nice in here. Did you clean? <laughs> Which would have been unusual. And I said, I said, no, but I kept the blinds closed all weekend so that the dust wouldn't get in. And there was this awkward moment. We were quiet, and I said, that isn't right, is it? And he said, no, Mandy, it's not. But you know how when the sun is coming in and you can kind of see those little floaty things? As a child, I had thought that was dust, and that had just remained in my mind. And I didn't even realize that was in there until I actually said it out loud and heard the absurdity of that. Uh, the first church that I was at that I mentioned here, we had Youth Sunday coming up where the teenagers in the church took over the morning worship service, and 16-year-old Jake asked if he could preach, which was a relief to everybody because everyone was nervous who's going to preach. I said, okay, Jake, yeah, why don't you come to my office? We'll, we'll talk through what you're going to say. And he comes into my office and he says, okay, I'm going to tell the congregation that they should give 80% of their lives to God. I said, oh, that's, that's very interesting, Jake. Tell me more. Okay, it's the first time he's saying this out loud. And he says, well, I mean, I look at my life, and I've got a pretty good handle on, like, school. School's easy for me. I've got good friends. Um, but, you know, my, my little sister, we don't get along all that great, so, like, I could really use God's help there. So we took a piece of paper. We ripped it into 10 different pieces. I said, okay, Jake, write down the 10 most important things in your life. 
He writes it down. I say, okay, Jake, what do you know about God? He says, well, I know that God is perfect. I know that God loves me. I said, okay, Jake, why don't you show me which two slips of paper you don't want this all-perfect, all-loving God to be in charge of? And I love his response. He goes, I see where you're going with this, Pastor Amanda. (laughs) Why give God 80% of my life if I could do 100? Yes, you got it. That ended up being what, what he preached on at the service. But who knows how long Jake would have had that in his head had he not said it out loud. I mean, he first says the words, and I'm, I'm almost offended. Like, we don't, that's not what we say in youth group. Aren't you listening to anything we say? But somehow that thought had gotten lodged in his head, and it wasn't until he could say it out loud and actually look at it from a different angle that, that, that he could change it, that he could adjust it. The words that we say have the power to create, to form, to change. So this phrase here, I love you, it's one thing to think the words, it's another thing to say them out loud. So I first heard these words uh, Easter weekend at the old college Wesleyan church. I had a key, so John and I snuck in. And, uh, and he said those words to me for the first time. I had had loving feelings towards John before, loving actions, but it wasn't until the words were said out loud where it was a game changer in our relationship. Or I'm sorry, you might act sorry, you might think you're sorry, but unless you say the words, there's probably going to be some type of breach. Or wedding vows. You think of how people get married. Will you, will you, I will, I do, I now pronounce you. It's words. It's words that are somehow creating new things. And then, of course, There's this little one, let there be light. We believe that we worship a God who who speaks things into existence. Our words matter. Our words don't just describe the past. Our words also construct the present and the future. So when I told you that story about the dust, okay, bit of an embarrassing story. Even though I'm telling a story about the past, it's somehow shaping my relationship with you. If you all would have sat there and just given me looks of disdain, that probably would change the way I'm relating to you right now. All right, so I wasn't just describing the past. We were creating something new in that moment. Bottom line, talking about my faith makes me a more faithful person. So for those churches over here in this camp, the families over here in this camp who are going, oh my goodness, this is a problem. We've got to... We've got to help our teenagers. We've got, to, we've got to give them the words that they need. The solution that many of these well-intended churches came up with was this. Let's have another class. Because we all know how much teenagers love school. Let's have another class, and, and we'll tell them what it is that we believe. I am all for Sunday school. I think this is a great idea. I also think it's perhaps not quite enough. So there's something called latent semantic analysis, LSA, and that studies how it is that that, that kids acquire language. How is it that, that kids pick up new language? And this study shows that the average seventh grader picks up between 10 and 15 new words a day. 10 and 15 new words a day. Only one of those words comes through formal instruction. So the vocab list from from English may be one of those words, but the rest of the words, they're picked up in context, in conversations, in songs, 
things that they're hearing from their friends. Now, I'm all about getting that one word and having influence on that one word, but I want to have some influence on the others as well. So how do we acquire faith language? How is it that we get the language to speak? And and here I'm not just talking about children, but us as adults, too. How is it that we acquire a language like this? Oh, that's, that's Paul. That's my youngest. He's older than that now. This is his, this is his Vladimir Putin uh, pose. I'm not sure if we can joke about Russia, but there you go. Jerome Bruner, uh, his, his role was to sit and watch mothers read books to their babies to try to come up with some type of theory on language acquisition. Could you imagine that as a job? You just sit and watch moms read books to their babies. But what he found was that there were, tended to be two groups of babies, and one group tended to learn the words faster than this group. And here's the difference. He said the moms, the moms would read the book. You know, the cow says moo, the sheep says bah. But the mom over here who would say the cow says, the sheep says and create space for the child to talk back, those were the kids that tended to pick up the words faster. Not just told what something is, but given the space to actually practice. All right, I I know we've got some people who know Greek here. Anyone want to give this a try? How about one of these? We'll We'll add a few other ones up there. Someone's going to find grammar mistakes in here, and I apologize in advance. Can anybody, anybody read? I'm guessing a lot of you took foreign languages. Yeah, okay, what do you see? I forgot to brush my teeth this morning. That's not true, but that is what it says. What language did you read up here? German? How, how did you know, how do you know German? Took some classes in high school. How many years? Three years. That's impressive. Anybody else able to read it in a different language? Yeah, what do you see? Okay, okay. You must have been better students than I was. I took three years of French in high school, and I was a good student, and I studied, and I got good grades. And when John and I got married, we went over to Europe for our honeymoon, rented a car, drove around all over the place, which probably wasn't a good idea because, you know, we're newlyweds and trying to navigate maps in Europe. Didn't always go so well. But when we were in France, John was saying, you know, Mandy, this is great. You know French. You can speak French. And I said, yeah, this is great. I can speak French. And so I went up to somebody and asked, où est la hotel? Where is the hotel? And then they responded. (laughs) And John said, what did they say? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) Because even though I knew the, the Sunday school answers of the language, I couldn't play with it. I couldn't. I couldn't have a conversation with anybody on it. I did follow instructions at one point. We got some really interesting directions on like turning right at the third house with the yellow door, something crazy like that. And we ended up at a pet hotel. Uh, Not exactly helpful, but I was proud of myself that I had gotten gotten us somewhere. For the most part, for the most part, people pick up languages the best when they're somehow immersed in that language. It is possible to pick it up in classrooms. But for the rest of us, there's something about 
being surrounded by a language, hearing it in different contexts that allows it to really get in our bones and stick. This kind of immersion experience. Oh, so this is Sam and Claire, the other two, um, much, when they were much, much younger. I want my kids to know the Sunday school answers. I want them to be able to recite John 3:16. Uh, I want Sam to be able to say, give us this day our daily bread. But I also want Sam to be able to talk about a time when God provided that bread. It's almost as if, I, I'm trying to figure out if I'm really on board with this. I'm going I'm to try, try this out on you, okay? It's almost as if the, the creeds the, um, that, that we use in the church, these orthodox statements, are, are the scales or theory work of the music. And then the stories we tell are what we construct, the sonatas, within the bounds of what it is we have there. I want my kids to be able to play with the language. So essentially what I'm talking about is this word testify. What does it mean to testify? Now, this word testify in the, in the Greek, you can translate the same word as testify or witness. So when you see the word witness, you could also say testify and, and, and vice versa. So depending on where you're at, people might feel more comfortable with one word over the other. But I simply mean a story you tell where God is one of the characters. That's a simple definition I'll go with right now. Okay, testimony, witness, both come from this mart family where we get this word martyr. So before Stephen was considered a martyr for dying for his faith, he was a martyr because he spoke for his faith. All right, the way that we know martyr now has acquired, acquired its meaning. I want to pause for a minute because Oftentimes it seems like people hear this word testify or they think about talking about God and they get this sense of anxiety. Uh, maybe you didn't grow up hearing about it or, or you did and, and you're going, I just, it's really awkward to have these conversations. I don't even know how I would begin. And this, this red square is helpful for me because it makes me imagine the question, how would you describe the color red to someone who is blind? Anyone want to take a stab at that? How would you describe the color red to someone who's never seen the color before? It looks like fire feels. It looks like fire feels. Okay, so you do something having to do with, almost with touch or heat. Maybe you try to put an emotion with it, uh, uh, anger. Uh, we can come up with, with words, with phrases, with ideas, but we're not really getting to the essence of what it is, right? We're, our words are going to fall short. And in the same way, we can't adequately speak of God. Our words are always going to fall short. We can't speak of God properly, truthfully. And yet, at the same time, we're called to speak of God. We're called to do something that we can't really do. Because even for me to say God is good is so insufficient. Because that word good doesn't do justice to who God is. You see what I mean? Karl Barth says, uh, speaking of God, he is at one and the same time knowable and unknowable to us. At every point, therefore, 
We have to be silent, but we also have to speak. That's clear, right? <laughs> we ought to speak of God. We are human, however, and so cannot speak of God. We ought, therefore, to recognize both our obligation and our inability, and by that very recognition, give God the glory. Our words are inadequate, and yet somehow our words are blessed. You might recognize this verse here. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What I love about this verse is how somehow the words of our mouth and beliefs of our heart intermingle together to create this, create this thing. They go together. All right. So how do we create these types of immersion experiences? How do we have these immersive experiences ourselves? Two things come to mind here. What does it look like to expose people to faith language, and what does it look like to empower people with this faith language? What does it look like for me to be exposed to this language and then find uh, a platform to actually use it? We're going to focus on this exposure question first. And the first thing I would invite us to do would be to practice Advent. You know, that month in December when we are waiting for Jesus to come. O come, O come, Emmanuel. When is Jesus going to show up? We all, December 25th, we say, but we pretend, right? We're waiting, we're waiting. But what would it look like to be in this state of perpetual Advent? of expecting God to show up, of assuming that, that somehow, <laughs> somehow God could show up at any time. When I go around to churches, I'll often hear from people, yeah, we have, we have testimonies in our churches uh, once or twice a year, and you know when they tend to be? After camp and after missions trips. That tends to be when there's, when there's space for teenagers or adults to come up and, and, and speak of God. And that's great. I don't want that to stop. And yet my fear is, if those are the only times that we're allowing people to speak about God, we're implicitly telling them that those are the only times that God moves. That God is only present. God is only active during those camps, during those missions trips. And I'm of the mindset that God can show up on a Wednesday afternoon in February. <laughs> Perpetual Advent. Living your life with the expectation that God might show up. Stuff like this is so much easier to implement when kids are really, really little. <laughs> you know, we talk about how, how much easier it is for a kid to pick up a language when they're small. They can pick it up when they're older, but it's so much easier when they're, when they're younger. How do we practice this? Well, somewhat by sanctifying the mundane, which might make some people nervous because, well, are we sanctifying things that, you know, really don't belong here? But in other words, looking for the spiritual and the ordinary. So how was your day might turn into, where did it seem like God showed up today? I remember asking, asking Sam this question. He was maybe three years old. We were at the dinner table. Sam, where did it seem like, like God was at work today? And he goes, Mommy, I don't even know where God works. 
<laughs> you can see how language manners, matters there. So, so you, might, you might say things differently, you might ask things differently, but especially in youth group settings where it's pretty common to ask questions like, what was your high and low from the week? What was the best part, the worst part, uh, the roses, the thorns? People have all different kinds of questions for this. But what does it happen to take, what does it look like to take these questions and, and tweak them a little bit? Where did it seem like God showed up this week? And where did it seem like God was completely absent? When we start to ask those questions, and we start to ask those questions regularly, then people start thinking of those questions even when they're not in church. So uh, last summer, the past two summers, we've had a groups of, of 20 or so high schoolers coming to Indiana Wesleyan, where every night we do a kind of Ignatian examine, asking them to reflect on their day, to, to look to see where God may have been present. And I have loved hearing from these teenagers after the program has ended, even just last week, saying, I still think that. Like, I'll be in my, I'll be in my classroom and I'll, I'll actually have that question, where does it seem like God is showing up here? Sometimes people think, I, I don't have a testimony. That's for those people that have the really exciting stories of this happening or that happening. I think you have a testimony. If you've experienced any of the following, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you fall into this category. You have a testimony if you have seen a miracle. Anybody here say, you know, I, I think I've actually witnessed a miracle. Any hands up? Okay few here. Yeah, sounds like a testimony. How about answered prayer? Okay, a lot more hands coming up. Something good in your life? <laughs> Hopefully everybody's hand is going up there. If we take scripture seriously that every good and perfect gift is coming from the Father of heavenly lights who doesn't change like shifting shadows, then these good gifts in our life we can thank God for. I know, that's, I know that's simple, but sometimes we have this understanding of what it means to talk about God or this testimony, this testimony thing, when in fact it could be something much smaller, something much closer to home that we're experiencing on a regular basis. Okay, so question for quiet reflection here. Where have you sensed the presence of the Lord lately? If you have a piece of paper, go ahead, go ahead and write it down if you don't mind. Where have you sensed the presence of the Lord lately. Take about one more minute.
could be something as generic as something that's good in your life. Now, in another quiet moment of reflection, thank God for whatever it is that came to mind. I think you'll find that testimony and gratitude tend to go together. See if you can find one person in this room that you would be comfortable sharing what it is you wrote. This is often awkward. (laughs) And now's the time to use the restroom if you really hate this kind of thing. (laughs) But let's take just a moment. You're You're welcome to move around and share with someone where you think God may have been showing up in your life. We'll take just a minute here. I'm not sure if this is on. I mean, she only, oh yes, she only works for me a few hours a week, but um, yeah, like I, I don't think I realized how much anxiety I was, how much anxiety I was carrying until she came and, and relieved some of it, and yeah, I've just been over and over again, oh thank you, love. oh thank you, love. something that you know that's directly from your dad. Got Sam said a word today and I was like together and they're 
feel like they're both like creative <laughs> when they're when their minds are together they can just do some really fun stuff we got um chip paper you know butcher paper mm-hmm. we got big roll of it and lots of colors and we loved it it was like all the things that she could we can just lay it out on the floor and just what we need to paint on the floor and yeah that's right because remember the day we were coloring on your floor with the little papers yeah. we had to put it together yeah 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 so we loved it we were gonna put it out the other day yesterday Take about one more minute. Exposing people to this faith talk, empowering people to speak it. What does it mean to, to have your eyes open in this kind of perpetual advent? Uh, anybody, you learn something new from the people at your table? You're, you don't need to re- report on that. We can keep it at the tables. But anyone here, just hand up, say, yeah, I, I actually heard something new from someone that I thought I knew really well. Yeah, okay, thanks, thanks. All right, I, I want to shift gears for just a minute because if you're anything like me, when you hear the word testimony, you have a very clear sense of what that is. And this is, oh, let's see, here we go. Skip ahead, merging through exposure, empowerment. When I hear the word testimony, I think stage, bright lights, 
microphone, a bunch of people listening, and, and a really high-stakes, anxious environment. So I grew up in a church that would have testimony times every once in a while, and we would know that it was going to be a testimony time if there were microphones in the aisle way. And I would always be really, really excited as a kid because, you know, you didn't know what kind of, what kind of uh, stories you were going to hear, someone who was in drugs and now their life was on track. My father, who was a pastor, had a very different reaction. He was always so tense on those nights. I remember sitting next to him and, and, and just, you could tell he was nervous. And I asked him a few years ago, I said, okay, Dad, it seemed like you were always nervous during those nights. I thought they were fun. And he said, well... You never knew what was going to happen. <laughs> so it's like that box of chocolate things. You never know which one you're going to get. So I can romanticize talking about testimony and this and that, but, but it's also kind of terrifying sometimes, especially when you're empowering someone, giving them a microphone in front of everybody to say whatever it is they want about God, especially when we already know it's impossible to talk about God. <laughs> So we're giving people this impossible task and putting a spotlight on them. So I want to I push against this. How many of you would say, yeah, this is kind of in my experience with testimony. It's been, it's been in a worship setting, kind of high stakes like that. A few hands. Okay. Uh, okay. You've got you to stick with me here for a minute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to geek out for just a minute. I want to try to expand our understanding of testimony here. I think there's a spectrum. So you can have formal times of testifying, and also informal times, okay? So formal would be in the middle of a worship service, right? There's a plan, this and that. Informal would be what you just did here, okay? There's not, not high stakes. And then there's spontaneous, and say whatever you want, or planned. You've written something down, you've, you've thought through something. So when, when Jake, this kid from my youth group, spoke when he, when he, in a sense, testified, he was doing something that was formal and planned. Okay, so formal, spontaneous. Anyone can stand up during a test, uh, service, say whatever they want. Okay, a specific person during a formal worship service. Spontaneous, informal, you know, sitting around a small group and open up the floor. Uh, what you all did here was more in the planned, informal. Specific people you're, you're saying something that you wrote down that you thought about in advance. This is high anxiety here. <laughs> That's what I grew up with. This is much lower anxiety on this side. Uh, often, oh, I, I won't go backwards. Oftentimes, uh, when, I'm, when I'm talking with churches who are saying, well, yeah, we do testimony, but I, I'm not sure that it's, you know, we've had this happen or that happen or it, it, it's just too nerve-wracking at this point. Uh, oftentimes, I'll encourage them to, to pull back into that ordered, ordered informal time. Ways to testify. Okay, this is fun. An answer to prayer. Okay. If you're in a setting where prayer requests are taken, is there also space for people to speak back? Hey, last week you said this. Anything, anything going on there? What does it look like for us to just embed our times of prayer with times of testimony? As I mentioned earlier, when, when you have a church that testifies, you tend to have a church that's very grateful. 
one-word cardboard testimonies. I don't know if you've seen these before. Someone might be holding up a poster. On one side, it might say angry. The next side, it might say freed. And people tend to just cling to one of two, one two words, how life was at, how, what life was like before, what life was like afterwards, just something simple. In a planned interview, so I was conducting an interview with a man who was giving his testimony on a Sunday morning worship service, and, and it, it felt like high stakes, okay? So there's 3,000 people out there, we've got the spotlights, and, and you could tell this guy was just nervous. And we had met the day before, I had a sense of what he was going to say, and I said, okay, Jorge, so tell us why it is you're getting baptized this morning. And I don't know if it was the lights or the people, but he froze and he said, because my wife wants me to. First thing out of his mouth. And I'm going, oh, no, this isn't what he said. But since it's an interview, that wasn't, that wasn't the answer I knew. I, that was the answer I knew he didn't want to give. And so I could say, yeah, I, I know that it's really important to you, for you and your wife to share the same faith. Uh, what does this mean in terms of your relationship with God? Oh, yeah, he says. <laughs> and then he gives the response that I know he wanted to give. Uh, that can be a really, a really fun way to hear testimony. One-sentence testimonies. Oftentimes, if I'm in a setting where people are not used to this type of thing, or even, even in homes, we'll even have a fill-in-the-blank, it seemed like God showed up when. The first retreat that I took my teenagers on at, at, this, at this church that I mentioned up until this point, they'd never had a full-time youth pastor. And so for them, a winter retreat meant that you go up in the mountains and you sled for two days straight. Which I thought, hey, that sounds fun. But I had assumed, you know, if we're, if we're going on a retreat, then something spiritual is going to happen. That was not their assumption. That was not their experience. And so I show up, we go on this retreat, and I've got a, I've got a speaker, a guest speaker. And they were so mad. I remember some high school girls coming up to me and going, Pastor Amanda, do you think that you could sleep in a different cabin tonight? I mean, they were, they were just mad. Uh, thankfully, thankfully, we had brought Dave Ward out, who just knocked it out of the park. And, and, and you could tell kids were just, they were, they were, something was clicking for them for the first time. Anyway, we, we got to the end of this retreat, and there was the sense in which people wanted to somehow articulate what it was that had happened, and yet they were really nervous about it at the same time. And so we just had a, a one-sentence, one-sentence fill-in-the-blank. I noticed God this weekend when, when you just had kids standing up, not even making eye contact, but just saying something out loud, getting that first draft out there, right? Family journal or poster. We don't do this all the time, but we, we do have a family journal that we, we, we pull out on occasion. And we'll ask the kids, where does it seem like God is showing up in your life? Where does it seem like God isn't present? And we'll, we'll write it down. We have a whole bunch of different stickers because kids like stickers, and it's, it's something for them to do. And when we first started this, Clara was two, and the stuff that she said was just nonsensical for the most part. She's seven. A lot of what she says is still nonsensical now. But I remember her saying things like, God, I want to go on a trip with you. Okay, that's not really an answer to my question. But we didn't correct her in that sense because she's playing with the language, right? She's, she's trying something new. And so, okay, write that down. Pick out your sticker, Clara. 
There we go. Sam, I remember at one point saying, uh, he's given me permission to tell this story, by the way. When he was three, uh, God showed up for him, he said, when God healed his cat. Sam doesn't have a cat. <laughs> but he's playing with his language, and so I'm, I'm hearing this, and I, and I said, God, God healed your cat. And he said, yep. Now his allergies are smaller than a dust mite. <laughs> you might guess he had allergies, too. But since we're playing with the language, I said, well, okay, Sam, if God healed your cat, what should we say to God? Thank you, he says. Again, so often conversations like this are so much easier when kids are young. One of, one of I think, the greatest gifts a church can give a family is giving them the space to have questions like this. So I remember hearing of a youth group that uh, had a night, a family night, where families were coming in with their teenagers, and they had questions that they had to answer. <laughs> questions about p the parents and their spiritual journey, and, and, and people were leaving this, kids were leaving going, I never knew that about my dad. Okay, but, but it might have been awkward for the dad to say, let's sit down, son, and I want to tell you what it was like for me when I was 13. But the church was there to help nudge that conversation along, to create space for conversations like that to take place. During stewardship moments, there was a, a mainline liberal East Coast church out in Connecticut, and the pastor there, so they had never done testimonies before. People would have been, you know, no, that's not what we do here. But she noticed that during stewardship moments, people were telling stories. Well, uh, you know, this time last year, I decided to do this, and then this happened. And she decided, oh, well, okay, stewardship moments. This is testimony time. We're going to lean into that practice. And so these same people that were saying, no, I, would, I, I can't testify. I don't have anything to say. They would talk about their experience with God in stewardship. An announcement, similar thing there. Or simply tagging on an acknowledgement of God in a story you tell. I wonder if God had something to do with that. There are more ways to speak of God, but three, uh, three stick out to me that I, th I think our words tend to fall into one of these categories. Descriptions. We describe God. There's the how we met story. <laughs> then there's the what's up, what's been going on recently. It seems like people are often drawn to one of these ways of talking than, than others. So you might, feel, you might feel a lot more comfortable talking about who God is as opposed to where God is present in your life. <laughs> others of us might feel really comfortable talking about that time 20 years ago when God seemed real to us, but present day, ooh, it's a little bit, a little bit scarier. Who is God? How'd you come to know God? What's been going on recently? I'm going to vote by hands here in a little bit and see, see where you're at. But which one, which one of these is easiest for you to do? Which question is easiest for you to answer? How many of you would say, number one, who is God? A few hands. Okay. How about number two, how you met God? When God first seemed real to you. Okay. How about what's up recently? Okay, a few more hands there, but for the most part, they're 
People were, people were spread all over there. Which one is the hardest for you to do? <laughs> the one where you find yourself just kind of shrinking a little bit. What's hardest for you? Who is God? Hands up. Okay. How did you meet God? What's been going on recently? A lot of you didn't vote. I noticed that. (laughs) But, there's always a but. And some of you that have grown up with testimony, I'm sure you have had these resounding in your ear since you first heard that word. But I'm an introvert. (laughs) When I was working on my research here, I had the chance to go to a number of different churches and study youth groups where testimony was a regular part of their spiritual formative process. And I went to one church, and I met, I think she was 15 years old at the time, and Maddie told me that she was really surprised by the kind of kids that shared their story in youth group. They didn't call it testimony, they called it shared part of their story. And Maddie said, I I thought it would be like the popular, outgoing kids, but, but, but it wasn't. It was people like me that were going up there and talking. And I thought, well, if, if they can talk about God, maybe I can too. So I signed up for a time in February, she said. I said, Maddie, that's, that's great. Do you know what you're going to talk about? And I love her response. She said, no, but my eyes are open to see where God's going to show up. It was, I think, November when we talked November, December, January, February, she was in this period of perpetual Advent, expecting that somehow God was present in her life and that she would see it and that she'd be able to talk about it. Now, most of the kids at that youth group, most of the kids at most of the youth groups that I went to, very few of them actually volunteered to speak. Most of the teenagers that spoke, they spoke because a youth pastor or an adult in their life asked them to. Would you be willing to share this story here? I'll I'll go up there with you. I'll ask you questions about it. Do you think you could do this? Very few actually volunteered. It's it's nerve-wracking. Okay, but my religious experience is private. I think there are times when perhaps the things that God is doing in our life should not be shared, don't need to be shared. Just because God has moved does not necessarily mean I have to somehow talk about it. So I think there are times in that. Uh, But I've got too many doubts. Some of the most meaningful testimonies I have heard have been those times when people have shared something really hard, and yet they're still there. (laughs) It's not, the, it's not the happy, clappy, God did this and fixed everything. It's the, it's the God, is, God is here even if I don't understand this. Interestingly enough, as I've talked with adults, asking about a time when, when they heard a testimony that was meaningful for them, most of the time it's, it's difficult stories that have been shared. But I don't want to be one of those crazy, loony Christians who every, every, every other word out of their mouth is something about God, and they're constantly knocking on people's doors and shoving tracks in their hands, and they attribute everything to God, even stuff that's silly, and I don't want to end up like that. Because some of us know people like that, right? 
where they're almost talking about God so much or, or attributing so much to God that you're kind of like, well, I, I don't, I'm not sure that is God. And, and maybe we want to back off just a little bit. <laughs> there was one young girl that I interviewed who was talking about how when she was three, their family needed a new car, and she was praying for a car, and God told her it would be a blue car, and it was a blue car, and then God told her she was going to have a brother, and then she got a brother. Uh, all these little stories, okay, as, as a three, four, five-year-old. Uh, and a number of the stories I, I heard, and I was just, mm, well, I, I don't know that was God. Maybe. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. I had my own kind of discomfort meter going up there. But what was, what was interesting to me was hearing the way she talked about God now, she was uh, 13 when I spoke with her. As a 13-year-old then, then she starts telling me about it seeming like God was nudging her towards uh, this particular well that was being dug in Africa, and maybe I could do something to help raise money for that. And she started this whole campaign. I forgot how many hundreds of dollars she raised here. But I can't help but wonder if, if some of those early experiences that I might roll my eyes at or go, oh, come on, if there was something that was still formative in that in her early years that at least let her know that God is present. She was expecting to hear something from God there. There are, I think, security checks along the way. Uh, Charlie Alcock would call these safety nets. Using language of humility. I think that, I wonder if, it seems like, I don't know, I don't know that I've ever had an experience that where I have publicly said, and I know this was God. E even the times when I really think with all of who I am that it was actually God, there's a sense in which I always want to have a language of humility, knowing that I don't understand God. I might think I know something, and yet there's, a, there's an ancient story about a man who has a horse, and the horse runs away. And the townspeople say, oh, what horrible luck. And he says, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And the next day, the horse comes back and has brought with him two other wild horses. And the townspeople say, oh, what wonderful luck. And he says, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. The next day, his son is riding one of the wild horses, trying to break it. He gets bucked off, falls on the ground, breaks his leg. Oh, what terrible luck. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. The next day, war breaks out across the land, and recruiters come through, and they gather up all the eligible young men, but they pass over this guy because he's got a broken leg. Boy, what wonderful luck. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. That's a phrase that's often in my mind when I'm thinking about testifying, when I'm thinking about those places where God is present in my life. Because I'm saying, God, it, it, it sure seems like you are here. It seems like you're, you're nudging me here. But I'm holding this with open palms, open hands. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Because I know that often you do things that we don't understand. That when I expect power, you send babies. <laughs> that type of thing. Using language of humility. Does this line up with scripture? When I was in high school, I remember hearing a testimony that a particular man felt called 
to move to Africa and be a missionary, which I think we would have been really curious about, excited by, except for the fact that he also claimed that God was telling him to leave his wife and twin sons. <laughs> and actually, this woman over here would be a better missionary's wife, so I think I actually need to go with her. Well, the community had a pretty blunt response for him. No, <laughs> that's not God. Does this line up with Scripture? Is this a way in which God tends to work? Run it by your community, that story I just told you there. What are people saying? In some ways, when I say something out loud, there's a sense in which it belongs to all of us in this room, and you can all help me look at it from a different angle. You might see something that I don't see about my own story. So we talk about sharing testimonies as if someone else is, is receiving it, that we are giving a gift somehow. Okay, some of the safety nets. So College Wesleyan Church was actually one of the churches that I studied. I guess this would have been back in, I don't know, 2010 maybe. It was when Charlie Alcock was, was the youth pastor here. They had a, a regular practice here on Sunday evenings where teenagers were sharing their stories. Uh, they'd sign up in advance. They'd stand up. They'd share part of their stories. And, and Charlie was always quick to say, but you know what, Mandy? They're teenagers. They're They're kids. And you got to be careful how you shepherd them. <laughs> so this was an option. Whenever things, it seemed like, eh, we might be getting too far out. Uh, let's pull back to these planned informal times. Oh, oh, I didn't, I skipped something here. Okay, the, the safety net's here. So this here, another time, uh, Charlie, Charlie had met with all the students ahead of time and had told each kid not to be surprised if Charlie joined them up on stage. You know, hey, hey, while you're talking, there's a chance I might join you. Like, if I want to go up there and pray for you, I, I might join you up on the stage at some point while you're talking. I said, ooh, did, did you ever have to do that? He said, well, yeah. There's one time a kid was, was speaking, and he went on for, we got to minute 26. <laughs> and at that point, he started talking about uh, uh, self-mutilation getting into something that, that pretty quickly, it, it took a turn, and Charlie's going, oh, this is not, and so Charlie goes up there on stage, puts a hand on the guy's shoulder. You know, the guy knew that this, this could come, and, and, and Charlie just said, I, I want to pause right here. I want to stop. It sounds like God has been doing some amazing things in your life. I want to pause here and simply say a word of prayer, thanking God for where he has been active in your life here. So Charlie prays, then with his hand still on the guy's shoulder, uh, says, okay, fin finish this up for us here, he says. Oh, I'm looking at the time. My goodness. Okay, last slide. We're going to go fast here. What starts to happen when you testify? First and foremost, you're glorifying God, giving credit where credit is due. It becomes easier to see other God stories in your life. Young children are raised bilingual. When teens hear other teens testify, Every single teenager that I spoke to said something similar. They said, I don't know why, but, but when a teenager is talking, I just, I just listen better. It just makes more sense. And all the youth pastors said, yes, they will say the exact same thing that I said, but they listen to them. You're going to hear a pin drop. That was a phrase that was used over and over again. You give the community a chance to speak into your life. Jake, after he preached, by the way, had multiple people coming up to him. Have you thought about being a pastor, Jake? Finally, you give a voice to the marginalized. 
I don't know if you remember this. Uh, it was a few years ago here at College Wesleyan Church. It was a, a New Year's Eve Sunday or something. And uh, I was in the middle of my, of my research, and one of the pastors stood up and said, we're going to have a brief time of testimony. I'm like, ooh, so I'm pulling out my notes here. Okay, okay, let's see what's going to happen. And I want to invite you all to just give a, a two, three-sentence uh, testimony for us on, on where God has been present in your life in this year. Okay, so the boundaries there. Something short, something current. <laughs> and then the pastor held the microphone, which, you know, is a great power move. You can pull it back and forth. And what was fascinating to me was who stood up and spoke. There were eight people that spoke. I, there were, uh, let's see here. There were four Caucasians. There were uh, two African Americans. And there was one man from Israel. Okay, so it was, uh, the numbers were, it was something like three or four were from minority groups. Our church has a lot of the same color. <laughs> but when, when the stage was opened up to hear from everybody, when, when we take the priesthood of believers seriously, we heard from voices that we don't normally hear in our church. You give a voice to the marginalized. This was how... Uh, African-American churches tended to pop up during times of slavery. This was how women first started to preach. I'm not preaching, I'm testifying. Last slide, final, final thought here. When Jesus was here on earth, as far as we know, he didn't write anything. He didn't write letters. Uh, he left people. You will be my witnesses, he said in the Great Commission. You will be those that testify about me. We have the word of God written down, but there's something about the gospel that I believe is meant to come forth from our lips.